was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole episode number nine. This is the podcast where we offer some reflection, rumination, and the occasional rambling on the world's most reliable, ruthless spy, James Bond 007. As ever, we'd like to thank you, the audience, for your participation in the show. You're very welcome inside the cubbyhole. Do feel free to invite as many of your Bond-loving friends and family over here. We're available on all good podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast, among many others. Also, don't forget you can get in touch with the show, or indeed just lend us your support very easily by heading over to our social media accounts, giving us a like and follow. Roger Moore's Cubbyhole on Facebook and Instagram. More Cubby over on Twitter. Or remember, we do have a new section called Q Branch, i.e. Questions Branch, where we'll answer any of your questions. So do send them in, absolutely anything Bond-related, via email to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, all one word, no apostrophe, at gmail.com. Now, looking back on our previous episode, we looked at Bond number eight, Live and Let Die. Uh, we discussed Sir Roger's first solid outing as Bond with some undeniably entertaining moments, humorous one-liners, and death-defying stunts. Uh, although we did raise some questions about whether the tone completely matched the otherwise serious storyline of drug trafficking. But this week, we'll be taking a look at Bond number nine, The Man with the Golden Gun. So with me to discuss, as ever, it's our usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who gets as much fulfillment out of podcasting as I do, so why doesn't he admit it? It's Adam. How are we today, Adam? I'm very well indeed. Thank you, Martin. I'm very happy to admit that I get every, much, uh, every bit as much pleasure out of podcasting as you do. Uh, I've been absolutely loving the podcast. It's, it's an interesting period for us. I think this stretch of Bond films... Uh, it's fair to say, isn't quite my favourite, but uh, The Man with the Golden Gun's a very interesting film, and I think quite an entertaining one, regardless of what you think of it. So, looking forward to getting into that one. Okay, great stuff. And secondly, it's the man who enjoys nothing more than guzzling foo yuck, and with his main dish, he'll order a Tabasco sauce served separately on a platter. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. I am very well, thank you. As you've mentioned already, thank you so much to everyone that's been getting in touch on Facebook and Twitter recently. I've been really grateful to hear your kind words. Uh, just a really quick couple of shout-outs before we get started today. So a very belated um, birthday message to one of our good friends, Danny Shepherd Flint, who was 31 recently. Also to um, Jimmy Shepherd Flint and to Alex Pryor, um, I hope you guys are keeping well at this time. And to a few of our followers on Twitter, um, thank you for the comments from Steve Spring at the Tchaikovsky and Gmarney1966. Um, it's great to hear your kind feedback. Okay, thank you very much, Phil. And nice to hear that our listeners are enjoying the show as much as we are. So if you remember last week, we had our cue branch at the start of the show, but we're going to move that to the end of the show just before 
the final quiz. So as usual, we'll go over to our double A team, Adam and Ellen, for the synopsis. Thank you very much, Martin. So yes, The Man with the Golden Gun. This is the ninth Bond film based on the 13th James Bond book, the last of Ian Fleming's novels. We're directed once again by Guy Hamilton. It's his third Bond film in a row, his fourth and final Bond film overall. Uh, Richard Maybaum returns to co-write the script with Tom Mankiewicz. And of course, Roger Moore is back as 007 for round two. So this film is released in December 1974, so still 14 whole years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Tappen. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! So this is the last James Bond film for two really key collaborators who've been with the series since Doctor No. The first is cinematographer Ted Moore. He shot every Bond film in the series so far, apart from You Only Live Twice and On A Majesty's Secret Service. So played a huge role in shaping that velvety visual style of the films. And it's the last film for co-producer Harry Saltzman. He leaves the partnership after this film and Alvatar Broccoli continues alone from this point. The Man with the Golden Gun was made for a budget of $7 million. It goes on to make $98 million at the box office. Uh, and that, unfortunately, is a very low total by Bond standards. Adjusted for inflation, it barely beats uh, the final gross of Dr. No. So to learn some of the reasons why it might have been less successful at the box office, let's find out what happens with Alan Partridge. Ambling down the gun barrel, it's Roger Moore. Bang! Blood dribbles down. One of the Vegas gangsters from Diamonds Are Forever is in Thailand, where French little person Knick-Knack shows him into Pat Sharp's funhouse, where he duels the three-nippled Dracula Scaramanga. Where is your golden gun, Scaramanga? The only tell golden gun. Roll sexy Asian titles. Bond hunts down Scaramanga by sucking a golden bullet from a belly dancer's navel. Ah! I've lost my charm! Not from where I'm standing and threatening to shoot the bullet maker's knob off. Speed now or forever hold your peace. Bond goes to Hong Kong where he walks in on Scaramanga's missus in the shower and tours the local nudie bars. In Bangkok, Bond meets the dodgily named high-fattened Chew Me, squeezes a sumo wrestler's nappy, watches two giggly schoolgirls beat up an entire kung fu dojo and pushes a small Thai boy off a boat. Bloody tourists! Washing that down with some ooh-yuck. It gets all Benny Hill in his bedroom with Scaramanga's missus and useless agent Mary Goodnight. Scaramanga kills his missus and bundles Goodnight into his car boot, so Bond gives chase. But then, out of bloody nowhere, guess who's in the car with him? Now I know you! You're that secret agent! That English secret agent from England! They corkscrew the car over a river. You're not thinking, I sure am, boy. But Skazza gets away by strapping wings to his car. Ain't none of you ever seen a plane before? Bond flies to Skazza Island for a mushroom lunch with a side of heavy banter. Come, come, Mr. Bond, admit it. You get as much pleasure from killing as I do. I admit killing you would be a pleasure. Skazza suggests a shootout. My six bullets to your one? I'll only need one. During the duel, Bond kills Skazza by switching places with a waxwork of himself that's in the Pat Sharp funhouse for no apparent reason. Meanwhile, Goodnight's Bottom, the most dangerous rear end in history, blows up the entirety of Skazza Island. After Bond fights off Knick-Knack's flying wine bottles with a conveniently sized suitcase, I kill you! Let me out, you big bully! He ghosts M to finally treat Goodnight, who's been gagging for it the entire film, to his magic penis. Goodnight! 
Good night. Good night, sir. The end. Thank you very much, Adam and Alan. A lovely peppering, so to speak, of uh, impressions there as well. Uh, so the men with the golden gun. This one, quite a different film and perhaps not one of the most popular James Bond films. I have to admit, I haven't watched it for a while. And I actually thought the first 30 or 40 minutes into the film, I thought, this is actually quite decent. Why do I not like this one? And then the second half of the film begins and I, I realized, oh yeah, that's why it gets very ridiculous, very fast. Uh, so maybe we'll, as usual, we'll talk about our general impressions of the film to begin with, uh, and then we'll go deeper and focus in on some of the, the characters, locations, and specific scenes. So uh, maybe we'll move across to uh, Phil first. What, do we, what were your overall impressions of, the, of this one? Yeah, in some respects, I'd agree, Martin. This, again, like yourself, this is a film that I've not watched in many years, so I'm kind of coming back to it with almost fresh eyes. One area that I actually forgot was the fact that, um, obviously, Scaramanga actually kills his, you know, his lover in, in the scene. That is one area that I actually forgot happened. So I think that, looking back on it, I think it is actually kind of a wasted opportunity because they could have made it a lot grittier from that point. Obviously, that's kind of midway through the film. We're establishing that Scaramanga is a ruthless assassin. You know, he's a very secretive person that's obviously got his own island. Nobody really knows where he's from. And yet we've got these kind of slapstick moments where, you know, Bond's pushing a little tie boy off a boat and he's, you know, leaping across a river and doing all sorts of ridiculous things. It's just, it's, it is, as Adam and Alan already mentioned, it is literally Pat Sharp's Funhouse meets uh, Confessions of a Window Cleaner half the time. You know, the amount of ridiculous escapades that we get embroiled in. It's just, I know that there has to be elements of lightheartedness in the film, but I think it just goes a bit too beyond that. You know, it's telling that Roger Moore in interviews after this would go on to say that, Guy Hamilton wanted this film to be a lot grittier and he wanted Bond to go back to kind of Fleming's interpretation of, you know, being a lot tougher and a lot harder. And we do see that in certain aspects, you know, when he's threatening to break, I think it's Andrea's arm, obviously when he's got her in the hotel room. And he is very, very aggressive in that sense. But then it all kind of falls apart when obviously he's got the fight with Knickknack and he's literally in a hall of mirrors trying to shoot Scaramanga. It's just, you know, it's, it just becomes a little bit farcical. So it's, it's one of those films that I struggle to take seriously. Phil, that might be my favourite ever description of a Bond film. The Man with the Golden Gun is like Pat Sharp's Funhouse meets Confessions of a Window Cleaner. I think, yes, again, this is a very confused James Bond film. And I think it goes back to what we always talk about being that classic balance of humour and action and spectacle that really makes a Bond film a Bond film. Now, in terms of humour, yes, the film has got a lot of humour, some of it completely ridiculous, but there's way too much of it. And unfortunately, it is lacking on the other two elements. It's not spectacular, really, in the slightest. It's a very small scale storyline. A lot of the spectacle is only really being derived from the location. But there's no real spectacle to it at all. You look at, only at the finale in Scaramanga's Island, and there's only three of them on it. There's Scaramanga, there's Knickknack, and there's one lone henchman who seems to be running an entire solar power plant. Um, and the story itself is incredibly coincidental almost. It's, I think, the weakest storyline we've had so far because it doesn't fit together at all. If you think about the fact that there are two main threads to it, A, Bond versus Scaramanga, and B, Bond trying to find this Solex agitator to solve the energy crisis. And 
they're only linked by virtue of Bond ends up sort of wading into the middle of this plot that was going on in secret. Scaramanga doesn't want to kill him at all. In fact, he lets him go on numerous occasions because he hasn't been hired to shoot him. And Bond is investigating this Solex, he's taken off the case, and then he's only on it because the guy he was trailing happened to then be shot by Scaramanga. It's an incredibly littered, confusing story. And yet I think part of that must surely be because at this point, Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli are on their final film together. And yeah, you can really see that relationship fracturing in the confusion of the film itself. Yeah, I noticed there was, uh, there was, I was quite impressed by some of the edginess of Roger Moore's character. It's almost as if they realised that perhaps there were too many jokes in the previous film. Uh, and so they tried to make Roger Moore's character appear a bit more grittier. Uh, so I think that was a good idea in theory. But then in practice, the edginess comes out at the wrong times, at the inappropriate moments, where he's a bit too violent towards Andrea, who doesn't her character doesn't really deserve it at that stage. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Roger Moore is given some rather thuggish things to, uh, to do in this film, and it just doesn't suit his interpretation of the character at all. Uh, he's very much the opposite of certainly how Connery and Lazenby played the role, and also the opposite of all the other tough, macho heroes who are in action cinema at the moment, thinking of people like Steve McQueen and Clint Eastwood. And so, yeah, that hotel scene with Andrea Anders, when... He's, he's breaking her arm, he's twisting it rather and threatening to break it. It feels incredibly out of type with how Roger Moore is playing the role, which is as the gentleman spy, the suave, charming Roger Moore, who can kill people and who can be deadly. But almost that unassuming nature he brings to the role is how he's able to kind of coast along in it. I'd, I'd agree. I think it is a very confused sort of performance, not just from, from Roger Moore. I think there are a few sort of, not weak performances, but it's, it's quite frustrating because you look at the cast of the film, you know, Christopher Lee is the villain, Maud Adams and Britt Eklund as the Bond girls, and then Roger Moore as Bond. You'd expect that to be a really, really good setup for the film. And there are elements where you think, yes, this is actually getting into a really proper Bond film. And it just all seems to fall flat. It's almost like, they kind of had two separate production meetings and two separate script writing meetings and they kind of came together and they said, oh, it'll be fine, we'll just stick all that together and we'll just, it'll sort of make two hours worth of filming. And it, it just seems very disjointed and, and quite awkward in places. Well, shall we, before we go too negative on the film, shall we, shall we talk about Scaramanga? Because I, for me, he is the, the saving grace of this film. Christopher Lee's performance is excellent, despite the issues of the storyline and the acting elsewhere. He plays it really seriously, and I think he does a great job in portraying this character who's kind of the, the anti-Bond, the, uh, the dark version of Bond. And even in the, maybe I'm looking too, too much into this, but I quite like the little touches as well in his island lair. We get, if you notice, when we first see it on the wall, he's got a collection of butterflies and insects, uh, which I thought was a nice little callback to On Her Majesty's when M also has his collection of butterflies and Bond knows about the, the specific names. So I thought it was really good how that character is portrayed as the, the dark version of Bond. But what did we think about Scaramanga? Yeah, it is worth, again, as we did with Diamonds Are Forever, reaffirming, with one exception, there are no bad Bond films. They are all fundamentally entertaining and, you know, gripping and interesting. And we're not at that exception. The Man with the Golden Gun. I must admit, I enjoy watching this film a lot. I admit there's a lot wrong with it. I do enjoy it. And I totally agree with you, Martin. For me, Christopher Lee 
as Scaramanga is perhaps my favourite villain of the entire series, if I'll be honest. I think he is that good. Christopher Lee, of course, is a cousin of Ian Fleming's. And like Fleming, Christopher Lee worked in intelligence during World War II. I think specifically afterwards when they were rounding up the remaining Nazis. So he brings a real authenticity when we're talking about that world of confronting, I guess, evil in the world through international espionage. And yeah, he plays this role absolutely as the dark side of Bond. He could almost be Bond if he were a little younger and if Bond were a little tougher. He is debonair, he's urbane, he's charming, he's incredibly articulate and eloquent. Uh, but there's a real sinister edge to everything he does. And of course, he's already at this point in 1974 played Dracula six or seven times, I think, for Hammer and become a living icon of the cinema for that performance. He's the previous year with Britt Eklund. He's in The Wicker Man. And so he brings all of this baggage to the role and plays it absolutely perfectly for me. There are so many great moments he has in this film. We'll talk about a few of them. One of my absolute favourites is the scene in which he kills High Fat, in which he sort of says very, very little. He's incredibly quiet. All he does is sit at the desk and he just lets High Fat talk. But he's just very slowly assembling the parts of the golden gun right in front of High Fat. High Fat, if he just took a moment out, could see that he should be running out of that room as fast as he can. But just that calm and that control that Christopher Lee brings to the performance. Uh, and his great friend and Hammer co-star, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee always celebrates as a master of handling props. And Lee borrows a bit of that for just the cool and the collective nature and the precision with which he assembles the gun. And then finally just has that little wicked smile and uh, that line of, oh, it's no problem, and just leans back and shoots him. It's a wonderful scene, one of many. Yes, I'd agree with, with his sort of, his level of acting. I think Christopher Lee really sort of turns up to 11 in this film, and I think he is one of the very best sort of villains. I think, again, with the sort of sinisterness and that sort of threatening sense behind him, it's kind of shown the most as well when he's on his on the boat with with Andrea, when obviously he's very very threatening in terms of how he interacts with her. So when obviously when they've just been in the lovemaking scene and the bed, and you know he's he's very very controlling, and very, even when he's got the golden gun as well, the fact that he's just sort of brushing it up against her in a very very sort of threatening way. So, and there's no real sort of intent of violence in that, but it's the perceived threat that's there, the perceived threat that he could easily kill her if he wanted to which I don't think we've really seen as much in the previous films, the kind of set that the villain has always relied on his henchmen to kind of do the dirty work for him. Whereas in this one, Scaramanga is very much, he is revered as kind of the world's greatest assassin. So, of course, he will naturally go in and, you know, he's not afraid to, to do his own dirty work, effectively. Yeah, I love that scene with him and Anders uh, on the boat in the bed as well. It's after, I think, he's assassinated Gibson, the solar energy expert, and he returns. Uh, but with very little dialogue between them, Christopher Lee and Maud Adams really capture that relationship and just how uncomfortable and transactional it is in a sense. Just the way that he rubs phallic-like, I guess. It's a slightly kinky but very threatening scene where he's rubbing the, the barrel of the golden gun over and she's trying to draw away and turn her head, but she's completely powerless. It goes back to what we always say about the Bond villains, those who really invest in the physicality of them and nail that element are always the most effective. Yeah, I mean, Lulu does warn us in the song, he does have a powerful weapon. <laughs> so we were warned. And he comes just before the kill. So, you know, Anders knows what she's getting herself into. If she'd have listened to that song from Lulu, 
before hooking up with Scaramanga, wherever it is they managed to hook up. He's also like Goldfinger. He is an artist killer. He talks very specifically in that incredible dinner scene with Roger Moore, uh, which we'll talk uh, hopefully a little bit more about. He very specifically says, I want to create a masterpiece. I'm a great artist. I'm not just a killer. And my masterpiece will be the death of 007, mono a mono, face to face. So it's a very direct confrontation of Bond, who obviously prides himself on being the most efficient and successful spy killer for MI6. But here's a villain who's saying, I'm not going to get my army to do this. I'm not going to get my henchmen to do this. I'm going to put a bullet in you. And it's really direct and powerful. Well, I guess he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, he lets Bond go a few times. He's not interested in killing him immediately. But then he does have that waxwork in the funhouse. An amazing waxwork. It's better than the Madame Two Swords one of Roger Moore. Where did he get that from? Well, the fact that it's wobbling in the scene, I wonder whether it's just Roger Moore standing there and then they just swap it with like a mannequin at the last second because the fact you could just see it slightly sort of off balance at the very start. So I wonder whether in the opening credits it's actually um, just Roger Moore pretending it looks that real, but I could be wrong. We've come a long way from two films ago when the villains didn't even know what... They knew about Bond, but they didn't know what he looks like. And now the villains have got a whole waxwork of him. Following on from what you said, Adam... I quite enjoy the scene where uh, where Scaramanga's demonstrating the solar gun and he just very calmly points it towards Bond's plane that he's come on and uh, and takes it out. I thought that's uh, you get a quite a nice interplay between the characters in that scene as well. Yeah, and, and Roger Moore's best lines in the film, I think, when um, Scaramanga says, that's what I call solar power, and Roger just goes, oh, that's what I call trouble. There is a great interplay between the two of them. I think Christopher Lee is really enjoying playing and sparking off with Roger Moore. Because I guess two more different actors in terms of their screen persona and, and how they approach the material, you couldn't imagine at all. But they spark off each other brilliantly. And that dinner scene when they're having knickknacks mushroom lunch is fantastic. The dialogue is so well written in that scene. And it's, I think, a definitive scene for Roger Moore as Bond. I think almost this is where he steps up to the plate, despite we're in the final act of this slightly ridiculous film in which he's not fully, as we've discussed, been allowed to play Bond the way he'd ideally like. This is the moment where he stops being almost a parody of Bond. He steps up as Bond and says, you know, this is what I'm about. The men I kill are themselves killers. I don't take pleasure from killing, but killing you would be a pleasure. And again, I think it is indicative of of how Roger Moore kind of moves the character along in these films. Although we've already talked about um, the fact that Guy Hamilton wanted Bond's persona to be a lot tougher. I think that Bond still, uh, the Roger Moore still brings a great warmth to this, this film. I think there's still, you know, I think there are elements of the lightheartedness that still work and that are still, that are still positive towards the film itself, even if it's perhaps one of the more weaker entries in the whole franchise. I've got one. I haven't had many controversial opinions. I'm not sure whether this one counts as one. Uh, in previous episodes, I've mentioned my love of Donald Pleasant's Blofeld. My opinion is that I think Scaramanga is better than any of the Blofelds in Bond. He's the dark, as we said, he's the dark version of Bond, and he just because it's played up, that part of his character is played up. I think he's much more interesting. It makes us question. Bond's motivations and his personality uh, as well, which we don't really get with Blofeld. Blofeld's a bit of a, an over-the-top outlandish character who is obviously 
easily parodied, as Mike Myers proved. Uh, whereas I don't think he could really parody Christopher Lee Scaramanga here. He plays it so seriously, but I'm not sure he could do the same thing. Yeah, I think to a certain extent, I think you're right. I think that um, Scaramanga, as we've said before, is probably the most sinister villain we've had so far. You know, the fact that he really is ruthless and he's, he's prepared to to do any act. I mean, the fact that obviously he's paid a million dollars per hit, um, you know, probably explains the fact that he is um, well trusted and, you know, he's, he's deemed as like the best assassin in the world at this time. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'd totally agree with the fact that he can be parodied. I mean, I, th- I know obviously it goes back to the book, the fact that he's got the three nipples, but I think that has been parodied going forward. But obviously that's not Christopher Lee's fault. Obviously that is just the character. But even within the film, that is kind of parodied itself because obviously Roger Moore infiltrates High Fat's um, lair by going in and trying to impersonate um, Scaramanga as it turns out unsuccessfully. I think, yeah, I'd agree with all of that. And I think the real testament to how good Christopher Lee is in this film is that he's frightening and he's scary and you wouldn't want to mess with him. And it feels like Bond's going into real danger, flying single-handedly to his island to take him on. Despite the fact that, yeah, they give Christopher Lee a lot of things surrounding him, which do undermine all of that. The fact that we've got the three nipples, and that's part of this being probably the kinkiest uh, Bond film we've seen so far, we should point out. And of course, we've talked about the the very phallic uh, symbolism of him rubbing that golden gun up and down Andrew Anders' body. There's the fact he's got three nipples, and this is, of course, a symbol of uh, virility and sexual prowess. We've got nude swimming characters who are called Chew Me. Uh, We've got the Bottoms Up Club, where I think we get our first actual full-on bottom in a Bond film. So there's all of this nonsense and this kinkiness surrounding the character. But Christopher Lee is a very sexy, attractive man. And part of the charge of that character is not just the level of threat, it's the erotic threat as well. And that also feeds into him being the dark side of Bond. He is also a ladies' man. He is also you know, an object of desire in a sense. And of course, the other way they undermine him is that Christopher Lee is an incredibly tall actor. And so for his sidekick, they cast probably the shortest actor they could possibly have found in Hervé Villachez as Knickknack. Um, yeah. What do you think they talk about in their downtime? It's only the two of them and that random henchman on the island. What Do you, do you think they keep themselves to themselves or do you think they go on adventures in the big city together? Yeah, I just think that's a really awkward dynamic in terms of, I mean, I know sort of um, Knickknack is played as kind of more of the assistant to uh, to Scaramanga. So he's, he's there to kind of, you know, fetch things and cook his food and things like that. And I don't think he gets much credit in the film either. I think, you know, obviously they play him as this kind of, this co- comedy sidekick, which again, go, we're going back to things like Diamonds Are Forever, where it was more the henchmen were seen as sort of the, the ridiculous figures in it. And again, with this one, it's, he's sort of played for laughs and he's not really taken seriously as, as a sort of associate henchman, really. And I think that's perhaps unfair. I think that he gets an unfair shot at what could have been actually quite a menacing character. Yeah, which is a shame, really, because the, his entrance, I thought, was quite good when we see Bond adjusting his tie in the, uh, the TV monitor of the electronic shop and then he appears a bit lower on a, on a lower monitor. Uh, I thought that's uh, quite a nice reflected. We get lots of reflections in the film 
Uh, although again, I think I'm going too deep. It's film studies essay, <laughs> the reflected worlds of the men with the golden gun. I don't think that they were thinking of that when they were making it. But yeah, I think I agree, Phil. I think the the beginning is great, but then it just turns into a ridiculous character of fun, doesn't it? Martin, would you agree that all of those reflections are, of course, part of the fact that Scaramanga, our villain, is, as we've said, a reflection of Bond, a darker reflection of 007? Maybe that's why there are so many mirrors in the film. Let's see, that will get you the A grade. <laughs> I'm not sure, of course, that final battle, Bond versus Nicknack, is complete slapstick, but I'm not sure I'd agree that he's played for laughs so much throughout the rest of the film. I think he's played for the element of the surreal that he brings to it. And that atmosphere of strangeness and that awe of mystery is something that's in this film from the start. And I guess it's, it's a continuation of what the voodoo elements were doing in the previous film in Live and Let Die. But there's a really surreal, strange atmosphere just on Scaramanga Island. Uh, and it's really effective, actually, in setting up this slightly more bizarre, creepy tone that I, I, and I guess ridiculous tone as well that, that pervades the entire film. Uh, but yeah, I think Knickknack is, is played for... I guess the fact that, of course, he is a little person and, and there's an immediate disjunct between putting him next to Christopher Lee. But he's in there, I guess, to fuel that atmosphere of strangeness and the surreal that's kind of in this film. Indeed, and we don't get more strange or surreal. We have to come to him at some point, the return of J.W. Now, I found out his first name is John, but still not sure what the W stands for. It's got to be John Wayne, as I've said before. It must therefore be John Wayne Pepper. I mean, we said that his inclusion was ridiculous and unnecessary in Live and Let Die, but compared to this, he was positively crucial to the plot of the previous film. He was just completely unneeded and just a, not a very good boat chase either, I thought. The ridiculous setup of uh, his... It, is it Lieutenant Hip? who just drives away for no apparent reason and Bond then has to get onto the boat. Yeah, just, just the fact that, yeah, as you say, his so-called accomplice that's trying to help him get away with, with his two nieces or whatever it is, and then just drives off and leaves him to run behind. And then, yeah, we just get this whole sequence which seems to just be cut together at the very last moment where we get to then J.W. Pepper being on holiday with his wife. So we even meet his wife, who's even more superfluous. The fact that she has no point in the actual film, and yet we're, we're there to sort of mirrors like JW, and it's just like, what is the point of this entire sequence other than just giving JW Pepper a, a brief cameo? Yeah, I mean, not only is there no reason for JW to be present in these action sequences, and, and this is something they've done twice, they have, I guess, the best stunt work in the entire film in these sequences which also have JW in them, who completely undermines said stunt work. There's the boat chase and the big jump, uh, which was record-breaking, which we talked about last week for Live and Let Die, which we don't really remember or notice because we're too busy laughing at JW. And again, in this, we've got the most spectacular single car stunt in probably the entire series. But yeah, it's totally undermined by JW being in the car and kind of being sprawled all across the back seat as well. So it is very strange that they have these great stunt sequences undermined by the presence of JW Pepper. And the other thing is, why on earth is he in Thailand? The idea that this backward guy from Louisiana has gone on a holiday to Thailand in the first place, and then, whilst in Thailand, is in a car showroom. Why does he want a car road? He's in Thailand on holiday, and he's getting a car road test. He's not going to buy this car, is he? I want me a demonstration, boy. 
But why do you want a demonstration? Why aren't you out seeing the tourist sites? And the screenwriters don't even try and justify it. They know it's impossible. So clearly they've gone in with the attitude of, oh, well, we've got him back. We might as well just put him in there. Let's not bother explaining it too much. Did you notice when JW first sees Bond as well, there's way too much time with his reaction to Bond. Like, he can't believe, like, another affected world. He's reflecting our faces. We can't believe that JW is in the film. And he's also in that first boat chase where he appears in. He's completely undermined on the comedy stakes by the little Thai boy selling his wooden elephant for 50 bar, 60 bar, or whatever it is. He's pushed out of the boat by Roger Moore. Uh, incidentally, Roger Moore looks back on that scene later in his career as a brilliant anecdote and says, well, later on, I was major UNICEF ambassador knighted for services to charity. I can't tell you how awkward I feel watching myself push that tiny tie boy off a boat. I'm sure he gave him his 20,000 baht in the end. You'd hope so. He'd probably have the salary for it. I'm not sure the film made enough money for him to hand over 20,000 baht. I was going to say, do we want to also talk about the Bond girls in this? Because I know last time we were speaking about um, Jane Seymour's portrayal of Solitaire, um, and obviously that was quite a problematic portrayal. Not on anything that Jane Seymour did, but obviously the way that the screenwriters and the director wanted it to be played. Do you think that kind of it's a very unfair portrayal of Goodnight in this film, the fact that she's literally played for laughs and that it's, you know, she's this sort of dumb blonde that's getting everything wrong and she gets stuck in the boot of Scaramanga's car and then... She tries to get out and obviously the, she's in midair and all, all these sort of more ridiculous pratfalls almost that befall her, which then culminates in the, the final scenes where she nearly burns Bond by forgetting or by accidentally turning on the, um, the laser device. What do you think? Do you think she's sort of she's unfairly treated in this film? Yeah, I think she's a victim of the writers not being sure about what to do with Roger Moore's Bond, isn't she? Because I think uh, it's not really like Roger Moore's Bond to be so rude, especially to a female character. Uh, and she, has, she doesn't do badly, does she, in the film? She, she takes him to the right. She knows that the Peninsula Hotel is the one with the green Rolls Royces. So she gets him to the, the hotel. Uh, but then, yeah, I do feel sorry for her during the first love scene. And before that one, she does have that line, the probably the worst acting, also a victim of Roger Moore's poor acting skills, quite wooden, that scene where they're at the table, where she says that she's not just going to be another one of his flying fancies. And then literally the next scene, she's almost naked in the hotel room waiting for him. They do play that for laughs, don't they? As soon as she comes in, I think Roger Moore has the line, well, what made you change your mind? And she just very quickly says, I'm weak. And actually, to give Britt Eckland a lot of credit in this role, she has recognised that they're completely playing this character for laughs. They've done the classic thing, as they did with Rosie Carver last week, of having a Bond woman who is herself a secret agent who's in the intelligence services, but is actually completely clumsy and played up for laughs and is largely useless at the job. And in, to, on top of that, in this instance, is also incredibly horny for James Bond himself. Roger Moore at the end of that bedroom scene has that awful line, oh, your turn will come, good night, which again is, is a line you sort of look back on now and think, oh dear, that's very 70s. But to give credit to Eckland, she does at least recognise that that's just what the character is, that's how it's been written. 
and therefore her role in the film is going to be to bring out that comedy as much as possible. And so, in defense of the character, I don't think it's brilliantly conceived. This is certainly one of the weaker Bond women characters. And then, of course, we also have Maud Adams as uh, Andrea Anders. I felt like they, they missed a trick with her character. I thought they could have really done a bit more with her. She's the, the kept woman who's seeking Bond to escape this horrible life. Uh, I guess the series does do better in the future, particularly Skyfall does uh, that kind of character better. But uh, what did we think about uh, Maud Adams? I thought, great acting, but uh, maybe limited character. Yeah, I think she she gave, as I said, Maud Adams also in her, her first of two roles, she should come back as a more defined character in Octopussy a little bit later on. But no, I think in terms of this film, I think she shows a great vulnerability to her to her character. So, you know, obviously, even with Bond, obviously, the fact of when she's in the hotel room and um, obviously he's trying to threaten to break her arm and it's, you know, that sort of, she needs his help, but obviously she's quite, um, obviously she's quite vulnerable, but has to keep the, the faith of Scaramanga. So I can see what you're saying, Martin, with the fact that, you know, they could have done so much more with developing that character and showing her sort of, you know, showing her in, her ingenuity and inventfulness obviously to try and to try and almost betray him and then give Bond the sort of the impetus to um, to infiltrate Scaramanga's lair. Well the producers do pay Maud Adams back eventually for her great work in this film by casting her as the title role in Octopussy so she does eventually get more to do but I, I would agree she is very underused in this and it's a shame because of the Anders and Mary Goodnight she's by far the stronger and more interesting character. Maud Adams brings incredible charisma and complexity and intelligence to this role. She's at once fierce, but also at the same time vulnerable. Just think to the first time she meets Bond and he's walked in on her in the shower, and it's almost a little bit of a Benny Hill-esque scene with Roger Moore standing there until you see her expression and until she just removes the shower door and is pointing a gun at him, which is then flipped and we see the much more vulnerable side of her when she visits Bond's hotel room later on. And again, it's an example of how confused this film is in that that scene is the same one we've just spoken about where Mary Goodnight's coming in that incredibly short nighty is, you know, under the bedsheets when Anders comes in and Bond has to pretend she's a pile of cushions and then has to sort of very quickly shove her into the wardrobe. And yet in that scene, um, we have Maud Adams as Andrew Anders offering herself to Bond. She has that incredibly tragic almost speech, which she, she plays for real pathos when she just says, I think the line is, you can have me too if you want, if you get rid of him for me. I'm not unattractive. There's a real sadness and resignation in that line. She's not seduced by Bond and she's not fallen for it. And she's not really trying to entrap him in the way that a femme fatale might. She's just offered herself because she's in this place where she has no choice and all she can use is her body and she really brings out the tragic dimension of that Maud Adams really incredible performance I want him dead name your price anything I'll pay it you can have me too if you like not unattractive at last you're starting to tell the truth one thing I also wanted to mention, this is going a bit of a segue onto another subject, is how pointless is Q in this film? Because we'd see no gadgets come up at all. And yet the only purpose he really has is to have a few board meetings with M and with the other solar experts. And that's it. It just it basically gives Bond a short briefing before he goes to Hong Kong. And that's all he gets. He doesn't give Bond any, you know, new gadgets that might help him. 
you know, he doesn't give him a car, he doesn't give him anything at all. It's kind of, it's just another token appearance for him. He does create that kinky third nipple. Um, it's always a shame, I think, that Roger Moore throws that third nipple away. I mean, the possibilities are surely endless with a, a fake third nipple. Surely that's one that he could have easily taken back to Q Branch to be recycled, maybe by Q, you know, if, if he's uh, in for a particularly uh, kinky evening with Mrs. Q. But it's, it's part of, you know, the, the running joke that uh, Bond always seems to throw the gadgets away or use them or they get destroyed. He never brings any of them back, which is why Q sort of hates him a little bit. And that was a particularly brilliant case in point of that, in that there's no real reason for him to just chuck it into a hedge other than, well, I never take away any of the other gadgets. I see no reason to bring this one back either. Yeah, I guess it's more dramatic, it's more dramatic isn't it, when he has the titillating line. Like, he couldn't do anything else. He can't just rub the nipple and say, titillating. <laughs> but I guess at that stage, he also throws it away too early as well, because at that stage, he still thinks that uh, High Fetch has fallen for it. So he might need it later, but he just throws it away. He presumably at that point doesn't think that uh, at dinner High Fat's going to go, just for me to double check, lift your shirt up again, uh, Mr. Scaramanga. Oh, well, I'm, I'm afraid I couldn't possibly this time. I'm, I'm not at my best. I had a large lobster lunch, I'm afraid. I guess the other thing about Q in this film is he is the butt of the joke for, uh, for M's quite epic grumpiness in this film. Did we notice this? M is as grumpy and as angry in this film as I think we've ever seen him. I don't know if Bernard Lee was, was just getting fed up with them at this point, uh, or, or knew that he was perhaps uh, approaching the ill health, which means he only has two more films in the role after this one. But uh, M, again, like much of the film, he's played for laughs in this one. He is the incredibly crusty superior in this, more so than before. We've not only got his line, oh, shut up, Q, after um, Goodnight's been captured and they've lost the Solex. Uh, but earlier on, he has these barbs about, you know, Bond saying, well, who would want to put a contract out on me with Scaramanga? And M says, oh, I don't know, jealous husbands, angry tailors. We also get the, I think the harshest line is when, when they're in Hong Kong in the abandoned, in the sunken ship. And he says, I almost wish that Scaramanga did have a contract out on you. So harsh. So thinking about this film in context and coming straight after Live and Let Die, are we to assume that because um, Dr. Kananga was Prime Minister of a Caribbean island who Bond has assassinated by blowing up with a compressed air bullet, that this maybe created a huge international incident that M spent the entire intervening year trying to put out? So maybe he's just really annoyed that Bond wasn't a bit more tactful in his execution of an actual foreign diplomat. And presumably they found the the skeleton remains of Whisper inside that, that missile shell. That will have caused a ruckus. Should we talk about uh, the finale sequence, the post-lunch uh, with Mushroom's duel? between Bond and Scaramanga. It's almost a disappointment for me after, um, you know, just how brilliant the dialogue was in that dinner table scene that, um, you know, you set it up as this high noon pistols at dawn duel on the beach. And of course it goes the classic way of Nick Nat's going to guide him into this very strange fun house. It's, it, it is disappointing. It goes back to this point about there's not much spectacle in this film. It just feels very small scale compared to the others. It kind of goes back to my earlier point that um, you know they kind of could they could have done so much more with this film in terms of 
the way the plot was put together. They could have done so much more with the ending, you know, the fact that Bond is, to an extent, is out for revenge because obviously Scaramanga has kidnapped Goodnight, he's already executed Andrea. You know, theoretically, Bond should be, you know, enraged and should be, you know, all guns blazing going in there. And instead, what we get is a mix of Pat Sharp's Funhouse and um, Noel Edmonds' House Party. It's literally just the two coming together. I almost expect in one corner there'll be the old gunge machine you used to get, if you remember House Party back in the early 90s. You know, there could have been like an actual chase through the house or through the island where, you know, Scaramanga seems to have the upper hand. But, you know, there's you know there's a plot device where Bond then overcomes him and, you know, it's, it's Bond's own cunning and his own thought process that overcomes that. And to an extent, that does kind of happen in the the sequence, obviously, with the house and mirrors and things like that. You know, Bond outwits Nick Knack by getting away from the cameras. So then that kind of takes away any advantage that Scaramanga has. But it's still literally a case of two blokes in a house of mirrors are effectively having a punch-up, almost. It's, you know, it's that kind of level of idiocy. And I think this is probably the weakest final scene in the whole series. I think uh, Nick Knack should be wearing a Mr. Blobby outfit. That The film can't get any more ridiculous, so he may as well have been doing that as part of the thumbnails. Uh, and I also presume that the mannequin, the waxwork of, of Bond, presumably that has a loaded gun in it, does it? Because Bond loses his Walther down the, the set. Yeah, this is one of the great sort of gaffes of the film, the fact that he loses his gun, but then magically gets it back again. Uh, it's another classic plot device, this. Uh, it's called Chekhov's Gun. In literature, it's uh, if in Chekhov's plays, if you see a gun early in the play, you know that someone's going to use it to tragic effect later. In the same way, in this film, we see that mannequin very early in the film, and so we sort of know or should anticipate that this is going to come into play in a crucial way in the finale, which of course it does. And uh, yeah, just quickly going back to Goodnight and her kind of the unfairness foisted upon her character, it's kind of unfair that she. She does get rid of the henchman, but it leads to the meltdown of the lair for some reason. Um, but I, f- I feel in previous films, if Bond had done that, it would be fine. He's d- in Doctor No, of course. Doctor No is put into the <laughs> into the liquid, and the whole place explodes. Everything's fine. But when she does it, she's messed it up. I, I mean, personally, I would have liked to see the the whole house remain intact, so Nick Nick could inherit it all, and then he can come back as a as a baddie in a future bad film. That's the only reason Nick-Nack's annoyed with Bond at the very end. It's not the fact that he's off Scaramanga. He's just like, you've A, off Scaramanga, and B, you've destroyed my island home. How dare you? I'm going to get you for this. The other thing, and which actually brings us full circle talking about mirrors again, is, of course, the fact that there are a lot of revolving mirrors in that funhouse. And I feel this is a very uh, deliberate copy of the finale of Enter the Dragon, the Bruce Lee movie, which comes out the previous year. Uh, This whole film is influenced by Hong Kong cinema and martial arts movies. And uh, Enter the Dragon, in just one year earlier than The Man with the Golden Gun, had been a huge international breakout hit. And the very end battle boss fight of that film is also in a hall of mirrors. It's Bruce Lee against, uh, I think, Han and his uh, hand with the the spikes on it. And uh, so the mirrors in this sequence, I feel, as well as being there for the reasons we've talked about before, it's a nice homage to Enter the Dragon, uh, amongst the film, it is very influenced by martial arts cinema in general. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel?
neither have I, actually. Okay, so we have uh, arguably one of the best car stunts in the whole Bond franchise. But what do we have for cars and gadgets, Phil? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. So this week, it's only really about two in particular because the producers had um, a sponsorship deal with the American Motor Corporation, better known as AMC, and they supplied the two main cars for the chase sequence, that being the AMC Hornet Model X hatchback, which James Bond and JW Pepper drive, and the AMC Matador Coupe, which of course Scaramanga and Nick Nat used to make their escape. So for many people, they'll remember the film for the infamous kind of barrel roll stunt. Never really been done before in a film of this nature, and it was also the first one to be used with computer modeling and mathematical equations. The production team uh, went to the Calspan Corporation in New York to get the actual equation to do the stunt correctly because it was so complicated and so technical. They also had to completely redesign the Hornet X that the stunt was based on. They had to completely redesign the chassis, the suspension, and they had to put the driver's seat in the middle of the car so the car was, had the best possible weight balance to be, to be able to perform the stunt. The stunt itself was actually performed by a man called Lauren, um, who's Nick, Lauren Willett, whose nickname was Bumps. To give you an idea of how astonishing this sequence was and how much people didn't believe they were going to be able to do it, the entire cast and crew watched from the sidelines to be able to see this stunt take place. And Willett did it in one take. So he had to hit the ramp at exactly 43 miles an hour to be able to do the spin, so what's known as an astro twirl. There is the inclusion of the slide whistle. Um, this was included because Guy Hamilton felt that the audience wouldn't have believed the stunt was done for real. So that was included just to kind of show that it was, again, a bit of light relief, but also just to, to kind of move things on with the audience. The other kind of iconic scene that we see in the film is the, um, the AMC Matador becoming the flying car. I can say for certain that this wouldn't be able to fly in real life. The actual aerial sequences were done with a, a one-meter scale model. In reality, not really a plane that could have worked in the real world, but obviously in, in the sort of the fantasy elements of Bond, the audience is left to believe that obviously the plane could have flown. The other thing I want to just really quickly go over is, of course, um, Scaramanga's Golden Gun. It was built with the help of a London company and a French company. So it was Calibri Lighters and Waterman Pens. So it was um, basically a lighter and a biro that clipped together. Obviously, we see um, Scaramanga screwing the gun together. Now, the whole purpose was that the, the two separate items still had to maintain their usage as a lighter and a pen. They couldn't just, you know, be be idle items. Obviously, we see Scaramanga using both in the film, but they also had to be capable of firing actual uh, rounds, not real ones in this case, just blanks, but they, the, the weapon had to work in itself. So it's quite interesting that this is the main kind of gadget that's used in the film, but that on its whole is pretty much all the cars and gadgets. Uh, thank you very much, Phil. That was uh, very interesting. Particularly, you mentioned the, the slide whistle was to make it more believable. I can't believe, surely it's the opposite of that. The slide whistle makes me believe it was fake. That scene, of course, will stay with us for quite a few episodes to come as the introduction to Phil's Cars and Gadgets section. So uh, on to our next section now. Uh, over to you, Adam, by the book 007, the, uh, the similarities and differences between the film version and the novel. Why don't you acquaint yourself the manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. 
Just took a few seconds, Q. So the man with the golden gun, the novel, uh, probably the most loosely adapted of the book so far. We take the title, we take the fact that uh, our villain is Francisco Scaramanga, and that's pretty much where it stops. So this is the final uh, James Bond novel, uh, and it's incredibly short. Ian Fleming wrote this whilst he was quite ill, and he submitted this book as a first draft. It's very unpolished, and it's very stripped down. A lot of the eye for detail and these incredible descriptions that uh, Ian Fleming puts into the Bond novels, a hang-up from his days as a journalist before he was a novelist, he usually added those on the second draft. Uh, and because this novel didn't have a second draft, because Fleming sadly passed away, uh, this does feel like a very slim finale. So to give you an idea of the context of this novel, we have to go back to where we ended You Only Live Twice, the novel. Uh, which was the final book in the Blofeld trilogy. Blofeld is murdered by Bond, who is then concussed and loses uh, his identity. He loses his memory. And at the end of that novel, is going to the USSR to try and get it back. It turns out that he was brainwashed by the Russian secret service in the USSR. And the very first chapter of the novel, The Man with the Golden Gun, involves Bond attempting to assassinate M himself on his return to uh, the United Kingdom. It's an attempt that is uh, luckily foiled and M decides he's going to give 007 uh, a final opportunity to regain his 007 status, which he lost in You Only Live Twice, by taking out Francisco Pistol Scaramanga, who's uh, killed a couple of his agents. And it's seen as an impossible mission that Bond is likely to be killed in the process. But at least if he does succeed, he gets his agent back and he's eliminated the problem of Scaramanga. The character of Scaramanga is very different in the novel. It's not as Christopher Lee plays him, as we've talked about, the dark side of Bond himself. He's much more of a low-life thug. He's much closer in his Cuban origin to, I guess, Tony Montana in Scarface, as played by Al Pacino uh, a few years later than anything else. Uh, and we're not in the Far East. We don't make use of those amazing settings in Hong Kong and Macau and Thailand that the film does. We're back in uh, Fleming's familiar territory of Jamaica, where Scaramanga is in uh, this hotel development with uh, US gangsters and the KGB, and he's also involved in running drugs and sugar and prostitutes and in building casinos in the area. So he's sort of a local kingpin in very bad company. Everything culminates uh, with a battle on a sightseeing marina train in which Bond kills all the conspirators. And he finally faces off with Scaramanga, not in Pat Sharp's Funhouse, but in uh, the Jamaica swamps. And it's actually a pretty good action sequence. There's a lot of tension and suspense in it. And Bond does succeed in regaining his 007 license to kill and in killing Pistol Scaramanga. So a very, very different uh, novel to the film in terms of how the characters are uh, portrayed and also in terms of the settings we're using. And as I say, very much a book written in a hurry while Fleming was at the end of his life and I think knew that he was quite ill and I think wanted to bring the series of Bond novels to some kind of full stop, which he just about manages to do with this one. It would be interesting if Ian Fleming's life did overlap with Pet Shop's Funhouse. Maybe he would have drawn some inspiration from it. And I like how our American viewers will have no idea what Pet Shop's Funhouse is. I mean, no one of a certain generation or outside Britain will know what we're on about. Who do we think would be the best James Bond character to say, uh, use your body and your brain if you want to play the game? Okay, so uh, on to my section now, which is let's not uh, care anymore. 
So for this film, I'd say we'll, we'll, we'll start with the racism, as we always do in this section. <laughs> and we'll start, of course, with J.W. Pepper and his very, very suspect lines of uh, pointy heads. Or I think even at one stage, it's brown-skinned pointy heads or something to that effect. So uh, really, really dreadful. And uh, yeah, I, I get that we've mentioned in our previous episode that J.W. is a character to be left at rather than with. But it just... I mean, we said his character's unnecessary, and certainly that racism seems to be quite unnecessary as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it undermines the very good work that uh, the film is otherwise doing, showing off these incredible locations. I mean, it makes such good use of Hong Kong, uh, and of course, the islands of Thailand and around Phuket. Um, so, yeah, it's just such a shame that, like in You Only Live Twice, those locations and how well they're portrayed are just totally undermined by these examples of just... the ridiculous racist language. You mentioned earlier, Adam, that uh, this film does take some good inspiration, some positive inspiration from Hong Kong film, uh, but it does seem like they've tried to just put a load of unrelated Asian cultural elements and just smash them together. Like, there's no real reason why there's some Japanese sumo wrestlers. Uh, then we get the karate and we get the kung fu all kind of mixed together. Asia is, just seems to be one thing in this film. Uh, even with the locations as well, I think they, they film some of the scenes that are supposed to be in Thailand are uh, filmed in Hong Kong, um, and uh, that comes across as well in the film, which you certainly don't want it to. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Those you know, fist fights and those kung fu action sequences are pretty much all played for laps with the two schoolgirls who beat the dojo. The fact that we grab a sumo wrestler's backside and then start tightening his nappy. Which, yeah, it, it just makes a mockery of the fact that you're using these great elements. I mean, if you look at what the Shaw Brothers were doing in Hong Kong cinema at the time with directors like King Hu, it's, it's a world away and it's such sophisticated, brilliant action cinema that you just think maybe you should have just used some of that uh, and taken it seriously rather than playing it all for laughs. It might have uh, made much better use of it. And then on to our second one, which is sexism, which always rears its head. We've mentioned that Bond's attitude towards women doesn't seem great. Possibly the, the writing of the character, they're still getting used to more as James Bond. But uh, as we've said, completely unnecessary violence and insults towards uh, most of the, the Bond women. Um, so uh, not a particularly great portrayal. No, should we have a very special shout out as well to the uh, the kind of come to bed hand gesture that Roger Moore makes uh, when Goodnight visits his room, which is um, instead of actually, you know, maybe giving Goodnight a kiss and a, and a cuddle and, and actually seducing her, literally Roger Moore whips the duvet over and uh, makes a gesture that, that is kind of jump on in, in its meaning. It, it, it is particularly lazy as a piece of seduction on the part of Bond there. And then, of course, we have the whole portrayal of Nick Nick. It could have been quite an interesting character, but the fact that he is a small person is played for laughs, and he is described as a midget by all of the characters in the film. So disappointing that uh, that he's put in the suitcase at the end and then tied to the, the sail of the boat. I, I do feel sorry for, for both the character and the actor uh, in that case. Yeah, I mean, that final, that action sequence when he finally gets to, to fight Bond is, is the most slapsticky action sequence of the whole series. Britt Eckland, of course, is married to Peter Sellers at this time. And that scene is very much like something Peter Sellers and Burt Kwok would have done in the Pink Panther movies. Uh, and, and it's a bit of a disrespect to a character who, had it not been for high fat earlier in the film, 
would have killed James Bond. You know, he knocks Bond out with the Trident in High Pat's palace and is about to stab him in the neck with it until High Pat says, no, don't do that here. That would have been an incredible headline in the newspapers, wouldn't it? Top MI6 agent killed by little person and two sumo wrestlers in Thai Villa. Okay, and now the questions from you guys in our audience, our listenership. So uh, what questions do we have this week, Phil? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. We've had a great response, actually. Um, A lot of people getting in touch on Facebook, Twitter, and to our social channels. One question that came in this week uh, was quite interesting, and it was from Gmarney1966 asking us, having listened to the podcast, do we think that Lewis Collins could have played Bond to replace Roger Moore in sort of the late 70s, early 80s era, based on his appearances in the professionals around that time? What do we think? Do we think that's something that the role that Lewis Collins should have played? Certainly from my perspective, um, having watched him in The Professionals alongside Martin Shaw, obviously he played Bodie in that role. I think he was very imposing, very physical, but he could also do that mix of, you know, sort of the glamour and the the sort of style that Bond brought to, to every role that was there. I think that Lewis Collins probably would have been quite a good fit and should have been considered more widely for, for things like For Your Eyes Only, even going through to the kind of Dalton era, going through to Living Daylights and License to Kill. Would you guys agree? Do you think that's... Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have seen much of The Professionals, but certainly from my point of view, I think he's he'd have been a great Bond. No, I, I think you've covered that very well. I'm unfamiliar with the actor, actually, so uh, I'm very happy to uh, take your word on that. Of course, Roger Moore's contract is film by film, I think, from Moonraker onwards. So this is probably the period um, alongside the Lazenby and, uh, and Diamonds Are Forever period when we probably get the most potential new Bonds, of course, because, you know, who's actually going to be in the role is very much up for grabs. Okay, thanks, Adam. And another question that came in on Twitter. So this is from Alex. So that's at AXK. And that's, hi, Branch. Was the slide whistle for the car stunt the worst use of sound effects in cinema history? What do we think? Was this the worst kind of ad lib at the end of the, uh, the sequence? Yeah, with that specific slide whistle, I think both Barry and the director, Guy Hamilton, have regretted putting that whistle onto the stunt because, of course, it devalues the stunt. It turns it into a joke and that's a problem with the wider film the fact that the action and the suspense is so often undermined by the ridiculousness and the prevalence of the humor as to whether it's the worst sound effect in cinema history i'm not entirely sure i think there must be some worse sound effects out there i mean there's certainly roger moore's own old man grown in uh, octopussy and uh, a view to a kill which we'll be enjoying in future episodes you've got that to look forward to yet uh, but it, it might not be the worst sound effect in film history. It's probably the most inappropriate. Yeah, we should remind our audience of Mr. Wint as well. Um, and just one really quick one from Nicola Kappelman as well that's come through to us. She wants to know our thoughts on whether a black actor could play the James Bond role in the future. Obviously, there's a lot of questions around Daniel Craig's tenure in the role moving forward. So what do we think? Would this move to a more diverse character portrayal? Would we have sort of a different actor in that role? Well, yeah, I think that uh, there's not really any... Oh, I mean, of course, Adam may correct me on this. He's more widely read on the, the Bond novels. But as far as I'm aware, there's no explicit description of Bond. It might be strongly suggested that he's a Caucasian character, uh, but we don't get it explicitly stated. So I think with that 
being the case, I think there's always some scope for character development in different areas. Uh, and I'd, I'd certainly like uh, a black actor. Of course, a few years ago, it was Idris Elba who was touted as being Bond. I think he would have been a great choice, maybe a bit old now. So his age, certainly his skin color makes no difference at all. Interestingly, of course, Roger Moore, towards the end of his life, got in some trouble uh, saying that James Bond should be a white character. And also, I think it was uh, Yafik Koto, Dr. Kananga from our previous episode, Live and Let Die, who agreed with him as well and said that black actors should have black character roles and they don't need to steal this character. But, but no, I've got, personally, I've got no problem at all with, uh, with a black actor. I think that's a very good answer. Interesting Yafe Koto said that. I do agree with him. I think, you know, there's a lot of talk, of course, about diversity and representation in film and television at the moment. And yet that will only be solved when you write more parts specifically for black actors. Uh, so more black directors, more black writers, more black characters. That will solve that problem. Uh, we do get a description of Bond in, I think, from Russia with Love. Uh, Rosa Klebb reads a dossier on him. But the thing about that is it doesn't matter. Like Bond has been reinvented so many times and so radically from the novels. I mean, Roger Moore's Bond is brilliant and it's a great portrayal and it bears absolutely no resemblance to the Bond that Fleming wrote. And so, yeah, it, it's absolutely, you could cast anyone in that role. I think if they've you know, got the looks and if they can do the action and if they have the charm and the charisma, yeah, go for it. Okay, very good. That was Q Branch. So, of course, get your questions in for next week. On to the final segment of the episode, which is the quiz. So it's over to you, Phil. You have the honours this week. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Yes, thank you very much, Martin. I'm not sure what you're going to make of this week's quiz because it definitely goes into my um, area of interest. But it's, <laughs> I, can see, I can see the groans on your faces. But basically, this is another sudden death penalty shootout which is, in Jesus' title, mine is bigger than yours. So this week, this is going to take on the style of play your cards right. So all I want you to do is say whether the answer is smaller or bigger than the one that went before. And it's all going to come back to car engine sizes. So going all the way back to Dr. No, the very first car that we see is Bond in the Sunbeam Alpine, which had a one and a half litre engine. So Martin, I'll go with you first. I can see you already grimacing in pain, but the LaSalle hearse that chased it in the chase sequence in the opening film, what do we think? Was that a bigger or smaller engine? Now, I do. I think I remember you saying, Phil, that that one was quite a weak car, going back to our first episode. So I think the one chasing it will have been bigger. You said bigger. You are correct. It was quite markedly bigger it had a 5.3 liter v8 so pretty much four times the power so adam for your first one so bonds bentley the series three in from russia with love did that have a bigger or smaller engine than the sal hearse it's a bentley so let's guess bigger i'm afraid not it was actually smaller amazingly it only had a three and a half liter engine so that was smaller so martin is in the lead with one so going into question two, Martin, the very much famous Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger, was that smaller or bigger than Bond's Bentley in From Russia With Love? Well, it's the famous one, so I've got to go bigger. You're correct again. It was only just bigger, though. It had a four-litre engine over the three-and-a-half-litre. 
So Adam, question two, so a bit more tricky this time. The Ford Mustang Mach 1 from Diamonds Are Forever, did that have a bigger or smaller engine than the Aston Martin? Well, I think Fords are known for big engines, aren't they? So I'll go higher again. You are correct. It had a 5.8 litre engine, which trumps the 4 litre. So Martin, you're ahead by one at this stage. So your final question, the Toyota 2000 GT from You Only Live Twice, did that have a smaller or larger engine than the Mustang? Let's go smaller. You are correct. The clue is in the title of the car. It only had a two-litre engine, so a 2,000cc capacity. So, Martin, with three to one, you are this week's victor. Only you, Phil. Only you could design a quiz all about car engines. So it's only you. I do apologise if I've scraped the bottom of the barrel this week for my quiz. I shall improve for my next appearance. Well, I feel like it would be slightly remiss of me if I didn't go for... Pat Sharp's Funhouse, the theme tune from the iconic TV show. So that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. That was episode number nine of The Men with the Golden Gun. Roger Moore's Cubbyhole will, of course, be back with The Spy Who Loved Me, possibly the greatest film ever made, in the words of Alan Partridge. Do remember to give us a like and follow on our social media accounts, and of course, get your questions into us for the Q Branch segment. So thanks for listening. It's a goodbye from me, Martin. And it's goodbye from me, Adam. And it's goodbye from me, Phil. It's Wacky contest, messy games, the fun car Grand Prix race, and a crazy chase to win lots of prizes. Now here's the guy that puts the fun in Fun House, Pat Shaw! Use your body and your brain if you want to play the game, Mr. Bond.